Today on the Matt Wall Show, the governor of Utah competes for the title of biggest coward in the Republican Party. Stiff competition for this, but his threatened veto of a bill meant to keep men out of women's sports may mean that he uh, wins the prize. We'll discuss also Netflix, along with Visa, MasterCard, and several other major companies have suspended operations in Russia. Are these kinds of measures more likely to help or hurt in the long run? And the White House is poised to extend the pause on student loan payments. For what reason and where do they have the authority to do this? Not that they're worried about that. We'll talk about that. Plus, the mayor of New York keeps his priorities in order by launching a war against chocolate milk in schools. And our daily cancellation, we'll talk about the trucker convoy, which officially arrived in D.C., well, around D.C. anyway, this weekend to, I guess, protest COVID restrictions, which are most mostly all lifted anyway. So we'll talk about that and everything else today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your keys in your car while you run into the gas station for a snack. Most of the time, you're probably fine. But what if you come back to see someone else driving off with your car? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, whatever it is, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. And uh, that's everything. Passwords, financial de- details, anything at all. Uh, it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody. Just some cheap hardware is needed. Uh, you know, you need to be about as smart as a 12-year-old to do it, which means that I could never do it, but lots of people can. ExpressVPN protects your personal data from hackers by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Uh, it'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past Expre- ExpressVPN's encryption. So this is a copy we'll have to update in about a billion years. Um, but for now, you're probably pretty safe. And that's why you need to get ExpressVPN. The best part about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. All you got to do is fire up the app, uh, click one button to get protected. It also works on all devices such as phones, laptops, tablets, and everything else. It is really that simple. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Walsh. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Walsh. And you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash Walsh. So it wasn't all bad news from the... Republican Party last week, we have to admit, late in in the week on Thursday, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill which prohibits males from participating in female sports in the state. According to the media, if you're dumb enough to trust the headlines, Iowa banned trans people from female sports or from sports in general. That's that's the way the headlines are being written. But this is uh, not what the legislation accomplished at all, in fact. Um, In fact, the, the neat thing about you know, being literate, if you are, is that you can actually go and read the bill for yourself. And if you do that, you'll see that the word uh, transgender actually doesn't appear in the legislation at all. It's not mentioned anywhere. That, by the way, is true of every state that has passed bills protecting women's sports. And I think there are eight or nine of them now. Um, none of them mention trans people. There are, there are no laws, actually, banning trans people from sports. Nobody anywhere at any point has even advocated such an idea. Instead, the bill... Getting to the crux of it says this, and I'll read from the bill. It says, quote, only female students based on their sex may participate in any team sport, team sport or athletic event designated as being for females, women or girls. So that's that's it. That's basically all it says. Uh, the bill does not target trans people any more than laws against stealing targets kleptomaniacs. Now, just because one group may feel a special compulsion to violate a law, that doesn't mean the law itself victimizes or oppresses them specifically. Because as long as the law applies to everyone equally. Now, if there's a law that says only these sorts of people aren't allowed to do this particular thing, 
but everybody else is allowed to do it. Now that is uh, an unequal law. Okay, that's that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. But in this case, all people are required to play on sports teams consistent with their biological sex. It's a it's a law that applies to everyone. If I move to Iowa and I wanted to compete in a women's basketball league, I would not be able to do it, even though I'm not trans. You know, I would be no more permitted to play on the girls' team than any man who who identifies as trans. That, that's what we call equality under the law, where we are all uh, forbidden from doing the same exact thing. Which is exactly, by the way, equality under the law is exactly the thing that the left fights against all the time while pretending to fight for it. Now, in any case, um, so there's some sanity in, in Iowa. Governor Reynolds should be commended. Move to the West a little bit, though, and the story is uh, very, very different. The AP reports, quote, Utah Governor Spencer Cox said that he plans to veto legislation passed Friday that would ban transgender student athletes from competing in girls sports. Without his support, Utah is unlikely to join the 11 states, or it's actually 11 states, all Republican-led that have recently enacted bans on transgender girls wanting to compete in school sports leagues that correspond with their gender identity. Vowing to veto the bill, Cox directly addressed transgender student-athletes, who he said found themselves on the subject of political debate through no fault of their own. I just want them to know that it's going to be okay. We're going to work through this, Cox said. The governor had for months engaged in behind-the-scenes negotiations to broker a compromise between LGBTQ advocates and and social conservatives after throwing his support behind a proposal to create a first-of-its-kind commission of experts in Utah to make decisions on individual transgender student-athletes aiming to participate. Cox said he was stunned on Friday night as lawmakers advanced and ultimately passed an amended amended proposal that included an outright ban on transgender student-athletes competing in in girls' league. Now, that's the AP report. Um, a number of problems with it. We, we, we can't break down all of it. I mean, pretty much every sentence, there's something wrong with it, and there's, there's propaganda in there, um, uh, including the claim that this is a, this is a you know, a, a, there's a need for a compromise between, quote, LGBTQ advocates and social conservatives. Now, it might be true that social conservatives tend to be against men competing in women's sports, That's only because social conservatives tend to be sane and rational people. You don't need to be a, quote, social conservative to have that view. You just need to have some basic common sense. Um, And also, there is no compromise available. There's no compromise between these two options. Either we say that men are men and women are women, and uh, if you're a man, you're not allowed to compete against women, or not. I mean, those are really the two options. There's no middle ground. Yet Cox pretended that that's what he was looking for, some sort of middle ground. He was stunned when the ban passed. And here he is at a a press conference expressing his shock and outrage and emotional pain. Listen. We have never discussed a ban. Um, I've never had a conversation about a ban with anyone uh, this session. Uh, That was never, you know, there were hours and hours, days, months of, uh, of discussion and trying to find that right balance. And that's really what we're, what we're seeking for. And, and I was able to listen to some of the debate on the Senate floor. And the truth is that, that everyone has a very valid point. We know the data and, and the, uh, the suicide rate amongst uh, uh, our, our transgender community is uh, significantly higher than, than anywhere else. That's the one thing I know. Um, the other thing I know is that we don't have any transgender athletes that are dominating any sports here in the state of Utah. In fact, we only have, as we mentioned, three or four. Um, and so, uh, so to, 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 to go from all of this work and 
all of this discussion and all of these negotiations to get to a point that was uncomfortable for everyone, but, but that was a path forward and, and really represents the best of Utah to now on the last night of the session, out of nowhere, getting a complete ban that, again, nobody's talked to me about, um, uh, is, is, is uh, incredibly disappointing. And there we go with the uh, suicide talking point again. Here's a, here's a question, and they always have to throw that in there. Um, for the majority of American history, when males competed against males and females against females, which is how it worked forever, how many men or boys committed suicide because they weren't able to cross over and compete against women instead? Like, how many? Count them up. Through the entirety of, of, of American history up until, like, right now. Has there been an epidemic of suicide because of this? No, of course not. You know, in fact, if we're bringing suicide into it, it seems at least as likely to me that a girl might commit suicide because a boy couldn't, um, because a boy came in and stole her opportunities. It's at least as likely as that would happen as it is that a boy would commit suicide because he couldn't compete against the girls. Though both seem very unlikely, which is why we shouldn't be having this debate on these terms anyway. Now, it's true that trans people have astronomically higher rates of suicide in general, but as I've clarified many times, those high rates remain high no matter if they're affirmed or not, no matter if they get surgery or not, no matter what, what sports teams they're competing on, because the underlying problem and source of despair is the disconnect between the true self and the perception of the self. The solution is to bring those two things into harmony with each other by treating the disordered mind, which has caused the disharmony. The solution is not to encourage the delusion. Let's not let this distract from the primary point here as it relates to what just happened in Utah. And that is that Spencer Cox is a timid, trembling, faint-hearted, slimy little boneless slug slithering around. Now, I don't mean to overstate the case here, and I don't think I could anyway. Imagine just how cowardly you have to be to cave to the trans lobby in Utah, of all places. Now, Salt Lake City... And, and people who live in Utah are quick to remind me of this when I've talked about this. You know, Salt Lake City has its leftist elements, like any city does. Sure. But Utah, broadly speaking, is not exactly the LGBT capital of the world. You know, if you're going to take a stand like this, you should be able to take it anywhere in the country. But one of the safest places to take it is in Utah. Yet the limp Cox curled up into the fetal position anyway. Now, granted... He gets $250,000 uh, from the pharmaceutical industry. You know, d- during his last campaign, he got a quarter million dollars from the pharmaceutical industry, which puts it among his top donors. Um, Big Pharma is all in on the trans agenda because there are billions of dollars to be made, and which are being made right now, in fostering gender confusion in children. All of those hormone pills and puberty blockers add up. Um, and lots of Big Pharma executives are driving nicer cars today because of all this. So I don't mean to suggest that Cox is just a coward. He's also a money-grubbing con artist as well. So let's not undersell the man. I mean, his, his, his resume is more extensive than just being a cowardice. But leaving his financial motivations aside, it's worth really reflecting on the extreme nature of Republican cowardice, as displayed by so many of them, especially Spencer Cox. Gender ideology is about as radical and extreme as it gets on the left. Now, it's also mainstream, no doubt. But it is radical and extreme in the sense that it's just about the craziest and least rational, least reasonable thing that the left is currently pushing. Not just about, it is. So, taking the issue of sports specifically, 
the leftist position is extraordinarily unpopular. I mean, almost nobody agrees with it in reality. Um, it, it, even on the left, they, they, don't, they, they don't agree with it themselves. Now, they might pretend to, but most of them don't. And I, and I know that because most people generally are sane. I mean, most people are not insane, and you have to be insane to take the position that there's no real difference between men and women, and so you can just compete, you can, you can combine and it won't make a difference. Like, you have to be actually an insane person to believe that, and most people aren't insane, despite appearances. A poll was conducted on this issue, as it happens, in Utah last year, and it found that 61%, this is what the poll says, this is, a, I think, a Rasmussen poll, and it found that 61% believe that trans women, quote-unquote, should not compete on women's teams. Now, 61% is already a significant majority, meaning that even if we just take that 61%, Cox caved to the minority. But keep in mind that the actual number is much higher than 61%. Because 61%, that doesn't account for the sizable portion of respondents who are too afraid to say what they really think, even to a random pollster on the phone. Um, that's the kind of fear this issue generates in people, that they're too afraid to say it out loud to almost anyone, unless it's just a family member in their living room. And even then, they might be too afraid. And also, the poll said trans women rather than biological men. The actual question was, should transgender women be allowed to compete in high school and college women's sports? Now, plenty of people don't even know what the phrase trans women means. Lots of them think that a trans woman is a woman, a female, who identifies as trans. Now, rephrase that poll to make it more accurate and clearer. Ask people if biological males, don't say anything about trans, should biological males be allowed to compete against women? If you ask that question, just like that, the no's are going to reach into the 90th percentile. All of this to say, the Republican governor of Utah stood against the majority, took the less popular stance out of fear of the noisy minority. This is the type of gutlessness that plagues the Republican Party, and sadly, conservatism generally. It's only through this sort of compliance and, and submissiveness that the left has been able to seize hold of our culture and make their most radical ideas mainstream in the first place. So if we have any hope of reclaiming the culture, it has to start by identifying the cowards and the turncoats and the traitors and exiling them. And we can start with Spencer Cox. Now let's get to our five headlines. All right, so we'll start from the Daily Wire. It says, Netflix and TikTok announced on Sunday that they have suspended their services inside Russia following Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Netflix said in a statement, given the circumstances on the ground, we've decided to suspend our service in Russia. Um, the Verge added, last week Netflix said it wouldn't comply with a new Russia law that requires large streamers to host 20 Russian propaganda channels such as NTV and the state-backed Channel One. Uh, the state-backed Channel One is what it's called. The streaming giant later announced that it's halting all productions and acquisitions in Russia. Uh, Netflix had been working on four Russian originals at the time. Netflix currently has around 1 million subscribers in Russia, so all of them are out of luck now. And TikTok announced on Sunday that it was also suspending its services inside Russia for safety reasons. Uh, they said TikTok is a, an outlet for creativity and entertainment that can provide a source of relief and human connection during a time of war when people are facing immense tragedy and isolation, according to this is the company in a statement. However, our highest priority is the safety of our employees and our users. And in light of Russia's new fake news law, we have no choice but to suspend live streaming and new content to our video service in Russia while we review the safety implications of this law. Now, 
the first thing that you think is, uh, okay, they got rid of uh, Netflix. They don't have TikTok. This is actually in many ways a, a, the, the best thing that could happen to the Russian people in a lot of ways. Uh, next thing you know, like McDonald's and all the fast food giants are going are gonna to boycott Russia as well. And that's when it really backfires because now Russia becomes the strongest and healthiest country in the entire world because these are the, 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 this is the, the only country these companies won't go, go into. But it also raises the question of, um, okay, Netflix is suspending its service. In Russia, first of all, how is that? How does that punish Putin exactly? So I guess that means Putin can't go on and binge watch Tiger King. But something tells me he's not worried about doing that right now. So if it if it punishes anybody, it punishes the people in Russia and nobody else. And if we're doing that, if we are if we are punishing the people in a country because of what their governments are doing. And if these major corporations are taking these, uh, this, this kind of stand, then what about Netflix service in China? Uh, what about TikTok in China? Well, the Chinese government essentially runs TikTok, so we, we, we certainly know that, that uh, they still have TikTok in China. What about that? And if you really want to extend this logic as far as it will go, when you're punishing the people for what their governments are doing, I, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if any of us are going to be safe at the end of that. Certainly, we've got to take Netflix out of Canada as well, just to start with. But it doesn't end there. Um, going back to the Daily Wire report, it says, Numerous financial service companies announced over the weekend that they were suspending uh, operations in Russia as well due to the invasion. American Express announced on Sunday that they were suspending all operations in Russia. And then um, uh, it was Visa pulled out MasterCard. All of these companies are saying, we're not going to operate in Russia anymore. As far as I know, this is the first time we've seen anything like this. With all of these major companies all at once suspending operations in an entire country in, uh, at, at, in revenge, out of vengeance for what that government is doing. And the follow-up to the story, by the way, of all the um, financial organizations pulling out of Russia is that, as I was just reading a different headline, is that now Russia is turning to China to make up for all of this. So you can't have Visa, you can't have MasterCard. Now they're going to go to, for all their banking needs and all their financial needs, now they're going to rely on China even more than they did before. How does that help us? How does that help the West in the long run? To send Russia and Russians uh, fleeing even more into the arms of China. So when we start punishing the people of Russia, I, uh, I know how that can hurt. I can imagine all the ways that that will hurt. Strengthening the bond between Russia and China, which we don't want. Turning Russians against the West even more. Um, when they already, it seems, uh, there's, there's a, a strong anti-war contingent and feeling among Russians. At least based on what we're being told by Western media. That this, this war is unpopular in Russia as it is. So you could flip that sentiment against you. That's the bad. That, that's the bad thing that can happen. Okay, that's the negative. That's the loss. But what's the win? What's the advantage? What do we gain from this? Is my question. And I and I can't help but um, keep going back to this this point here that uh, after nine eleven, we were constantly warned. Like the very next day, 
uh, the, the, one of the first priorities, one of the number one priorities after 9-11 was to make sure that there was no Islamophobia. In fact, prior to 9-11, I'm not sure I even ever heard the phrase Islamophobia. After 9-11 is when it, uh, is when it became mainstream. And we kept hearing about this problem of Islamophobia. So we were very, in our, in our country, there was this intense focus on making sure that uh, regular Muslim people are not held responsible for what some Muslims did. And then you fast forward a little bit, and China uh, invents a virus in a lab, unleashes it on the world one way or another, kills 5 million people. And again, what's one of the first things we hear? That we, we can't have uh, anti-Asian hate has to stop. You know, there's a plague of anti-Asian hate, which is an even bigger epidemic, even bigger plague than COVID itself. To so much as call uh, co- the coronavirus the, the China virus is itself an act. It's a hate crime against Asians. And yet with, with Russia, now all of a sudden it's, yeah, hold, hold, hold them all accountable. Punish all Russian people. Go and vandalize. If there's Russian restaurants and stores here, vandalize them. No big deal. Why, why is that? It, it would almost seem as though the idea is that um, because Russian people are perceived as white, even though a great many of them really are not, but they're perceived as white, and so therefore it's bigotry against them and punishing them for what their government is doing is okay, whereas you could never do that against uh, Chinese people because they're not white. Now, speaking of Ukraine, I wanted to play this clip for you. Uh, Bryce Mitchell is a star in the UFC, and... Usually I'm not a big fan when athletes are at press conferences and they're supposed to be talking about their sport, but they're asked a question about, you know, some political issue or geopolitical issue, even worse. But that happened here. For whatever reason, they stopped this guy at his press conference and they asked him, what do you think of uh, Russia and Ukraine? And this is one of the most cogent uh, analyses I think I've heard on the entire issue coming from a guy in the UFC who begins by saying, I don't know a lot about it. But what, what follows from there is far more sensible and rational than most of what you hear on cable news. Listen to this. Well, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the whole Russia and Ukraine situation. You know, um, here, here's my first thought is I'm not going nowhere to fight none of these wars for these politicians. I'm staying at home. And when the war comes to Arkansas, I will dig my boots in the ground and I will die for everything I love. And I will not retreat if this country's invaded and... Everybody's saying, well, we got to we got to evacuate. We got to leave. We got I will not. I will dig my boots in the Arkansas soil and I will fight for the people that I love, for the land that I love and the way of life that I love. But I'm not going overseas to fight. I don't know what's going on, to be honest, brother. I really don't. There's so much stuff. And I don't think nobody knows what's going on fully. There's been so much political corruption in that area. You got Biden and his son making a ton of money off of uh, and using our tax dollars to bribe their people. That's treasonous in my opinion. Uh, so you got Hunter Biden and his son using our tax dollars. Hey, if, if Ukrainian government, if you don't do this, we're taking your tax dollars. He shouldn't be giving our tax dollars to that country anyway. We got veterans out here sleeping on the street and you're gonna give our freaking tax dollars to these Ukrainians and all the, I, brother, I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm not going over there and fighting and God bless anybody that's over there fighting and I hope that this just get solved and man i don't like war 
You know what I mean? I don't want people dying and all that stuff. I don't want to be, but I don't know what's going on. There's so much stuff that I think that's corrupted that we just don't know what's truly going on over there. An agent of Putin, obviously. I mean, when you hear that, right, the only conclusion you can draw as a rational person is that he is, uh, that he is being directly paid by Putin himself and he is pro-Putin and he wants Ukraine to be invaded and all Ukrainians to be killed in the massive genocide. That's, that's what we have to, I mean, at least that's what we're told. If you're, if you waver from the established narrative on this at all, then you're pro-Putin. That's what we're told anyway. Or, you know, you can have some common sense and realize that this is, you know, the the reason why this is a, a cogent analysis is that it starts, number one, by admitting how little you know about what's going on. And I wish that more people had this kind of humility from the very beginning. Okay, because as I said, before, you know, before the invasion actually happened, we started hearing about uh, the potential that it would happen. But what one of the first things I said on the show is that is that in the coming days, you're going to hear a lot of people talking about Ukraine and they're going to have uh, very firm opinions on Ukraine. And 99 percent of those people have never even thought about Ukraine prior to that moment when it was in the news cycle. What's more, how many of them, this is what I want to know, how many of all the people that have got Ukraine flags in their profiles right now, how many of them could point to it on a map without cheating, without using Google? If I showed them a map of, uh, of that part of Europe without any labels, how many of them could point to Ukraine? Less than 50%? Less than 25%? And that's, I mean, there is a woeful lack in geographic knowledge among Americans, so it is a, a general problem. But the fact that most people haven't really thought about Ukraine, don't know a lot about the, the, the historic tensions between Ukraine and Russia, which, by the way, didn't just start this past week. There's a history there. And as much as, as we want to be told that it's a very clear good guy versus bad guy uh, dynamic, it's actually not quite that clear when you go through the history of it, which is almost always the case when it comes to feuds and tensions between people and between nations. So I've said this before about uh, I said this before about about marriages that fall apart. And sometimes it's it's really clear in a marriage. There's a bad guy and there's a good guy. You know, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes someone's just a total monster and the other person is uh, practically a saint. And that that happens sometimes. But most of the time, you'll get that impression when you hear just one person's side of the story. But if you go and hear the other person's side, you're going to hear de- now. You might still, after hearing the other person's side, be on the original person's side. But you're going to hear details that make you go, "Oh, I didn't know about that." That's interesting. So that's the case about, about when it comes to tensions between people, especially when it comes to tensions between governments. There are no saintly governments in the world. Doesn't mean that there are no bad guys and good guys when it comes to individual conflicts. Russia is the bad guy here. They're the one invading. But the point is there's a history, okay, that most people just don't know. And it's okay to not know because we can't know everything. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of us can't really, can't really know anything at all, it seems like. But we, we certainly can't know everything. And you're going to be focused primarily and uh, justifiably on the things happening right around you in your own country. But all that means is that when something starts to happen 6,000 miles away, and the media, and, and you start, and there's, there's just sort of one version of events that you're hearing from the media, and the media assigns you a position that you're supposed to have and says, anyone who does not have this position, this exact position, 
is whatever bad, terrible label they come up with. The moment that happens, there should be some skepticism. And you should stop and say, well, you know, I don't really know a lot about this. I'm, I'm very far removed from it. And all the information I'm getting right now is from the media. And I don't, I don't really trust them. And so that's when you take um, the position that Bryce Mitchell took there, I think, which is a very sensible position. All right, one other note here on uh, Ukraine. George Sakai tweeted this. I just wanted to show this to you. Um, he says, Americans, we can endure higher prices for food and gas if it means putting the screws to Putin. Consider it a patriotic donation in the fight for freedom over tyr- tyranny. George Sakai is uh, obviously a hero, willing to make a sacrifice. Yeah, we should be able to sacrifice. We should sacrifice uh, for the sake of the people of Ukraine. Now, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a different position. Uh, I'm going to say, no, <laughs> I, I don't really see why we as Americans should have to make any sacrifices necessarily because of this conflict that's going on overseas. Um, and it's really easy to say, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at an American family, right, sitting around the dinner table. And it's, I'm not sure I can make the pitch to them that you should have to make sacrifices in your life, significant sacrifices because of Ukraine and Russia. Now, George Sakai can, can take that position, and it's an easy one for him to take. And he can pretend to be that he's making a sacrifice and that he's, he's being so heroic and selfless. But George Sakai is old as dirt, childless, and rich. Rich, by the way, from doing nothing. Like he was in Star Trek 85 years ago, and since then has done nothing at all, and, but has just made all the royalties and everything and merchandise and whatever else. Um, so he's just sitting back doing nothing at all for the, for the last uh, 60 years of his life. He's rich. He doesn't have any kids. He's not going to be around much longer. He's in his 80s. And so it's easy for him to say, oh, yeah, we can endure these higher prices. When you're worth $20 million and have no dependents, sure, higher prices for food, you barely even notice it. But for a lot of American families are not in that position. All right. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain on Thursday signaled that the White House would extend the freeze on student loan payments again, following no mention of student loans in the State of the Union earlier in the week. Uh, Klain was on the podcast Pod Save America, and he spoke about this. And in fact, we have the video, and uh, let's play that now. The president's going to uh, look at what we should do on student debt uh, before uh, uh, the pause expires or he'll extend the pause. Joe Biden right now is the only president in history where no one's paid on their student loans for the entirety of his presidency. And so the question of whether or not there's some executive action, student debt forgiveness, uh, when the payments res- resume uh, is a decision we're going to take before the payments resume. Uh, right now, uh, people aren't, ha- aren't having to pay on their loans. And um, and so I think dealing with the executive branch question, what we should do about that, what his powers are, how much we should do on that, that's something we're going to deal with later on. Yeah, the, the question that is uh, not answered, well, we're going to look at, maybe we'll pause the student loans. Um, a few questions. Number one is wh- where, and I know that this is such a moot point now because, you know, uh, the, the, the executive branch has long since become this kind of monarchical maybe has always been in a certain way, uh, institution, and it has claimed for itself the power to do basically anything that it wants. Um, so we, we, th- we've lived in that world for forever, basically. And then ever since COVID, it's only gotten worse. You know, when you have the, um, when you have 
organizations or, or you know agencies in in the federal government that can say to landlords just dec- decree that you're not allowed to evict people who don't pay their rent. You know, delinquent tenants are not allowed to to evict them. Well, we'll let we'll let you know when you're allowed to uh, to do that again. And there was there was never any explanation of where they derived that authority. And same thing here. Where where exactly, where exactly, does the president find the authority to just put a pause on student loans? And and also why why are we doing this exactly? Because they're talking about for there's there's this uh, obviously this conflict here this contradiction because on one hand they're bragging about the Biden administration is bragging about the unemployment rate that's going down and people are getting back to work and the economy is doing great which what they don't mention by the way when they when they're bragging about how the unemployment rate is going down is that they had for a long time stopped people from working. They they locked people in a cage basically and said you're not allowed to work and then they unlocked the cage and opened it and said look at all these people working we've created jobs no you've just you've just pulled back from stopping them from doing something that they were doing before you stopped them from doing it but if the economy has roared back to life and we're doing we're in great shape and hey but don't look at the uh, inflation don't check the gas prices don't look at the food prices but you know everything don't don't look at that behind the curtain over there. Everything's doing great. If that's if that's the case, then why even more so? Why are we extending the pause on student loans? And also, why student loans? This is a question I always ask about this. Is of all the bills and debts that people have, um, I have plenty. Like anybody else, I have plenty of bills uh, of my own that I have to pay. Um, debts that I have to pay, including my mortgage. Why are student loans special? Exactly. Why do we? Why why do they get the kind of pride of place? Those questions never answered, obviously. This is from Politico. It says, Eric Adams has a problem with chocolate milk. New York's first self-professed vegan mayor was at the forefront of a movement to ban chocolate milk from public schools before his time in City Hall. Now equipped with the power to set policies for the nation's largest school system, the evangelist for healthy living has again turned his attention to the lunchroom staple and registered concern with the state's powerful dairy industry. Uh, He said, we're having a conversation about should we have chocolate high sugar milk in our schools. Now, I'm not going to become nanny mayor, but we do need to have our children, we, we, do, need to, we do need to have our children have options. I think it means we need to have children to have options. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be the, the nanny mayor. It goes on for a long time talking about this debate over chocolate milk and I've already lost interest, so I can't read any more of it. But he doesn't want to be the nanny mayor and yet he's uh, very concerned about chocolate milk in schools. And if this annoys you, what you have to remember, as always, is that, um, is that this is how the government looks at public schools. You know, when you send your kid to public school, you are sending your kid into the care of the government. These are government schools. As I've said, that we, we should, rather than calling them public schools, uh, I think a better word would just be government schools. Because it emphasizes what you're actually doing. You're sending your kid into a government building to be, taking, to be cared for by government employees. And that means that the people at the top, people running the government are going to feel like, you know, they're, they, they basically are the nannies. And, um, so you're going to have these kind of nanny state laws. And in some ways they're, they're actually right because the government school system is one giant kind of free daycare, not really free because it actually costs a lot of money, but you don't have to pay up front for it. Um, 
it's one giant daycare or sort of nanny system. And that's where you're going to get rules like this. And I, actually, I will say, I mean, I think it's, it's incredibly stupid for uh, the, the mayor of New York to be focused on chocolate milk in schools at all. I mean, if you're the mayor of New York and you've got homeless people running rampant, throwing, you know, down in the subway, throwing people in front of trains and all this kind of stuff, and crime and violence is, uh, is reaching record highs and spiking like it is in every other major city, then that should be 100% of your focus, basically. And you can get to chocolate milk once you've solved all of those problems, which you never will. So that means you're never going to get to it. But all that being said, I do actually think um, yeah, you can have chocolate milk in schools. It's fine. But it's, it's not a crazy thing to think about the diet that these kids are being fed in schools, what kind of food they're being fed, only because... When they're in the, the, the government school system, they're sitting at desks for like seven hours a day doing busy work, which is already almost impossible for a lot of kids to do, especially boys. And that's why many of them get diagnosed with ADHD and drugged. Um, but considering that very challenging environment you've put them in, very unnatural environment, Anything you feed them with artificial sugars or anything like that, you're, you only make it all the, all the more difficult for them to, to sit still and, and pay attention. So something else to think about as well. Let's get now to the comment section. If you're a man, it's required that you grow a beard. Hey, we're the sweet baby gang. This is from uh, Matthew DuPlessis says, for a minute, I thought Matt was going to enter the Women's Swimming Championships. Got way too excited now that I think about it. Uh, well, I could, you know, beard and all. I could probably just jump in the pool and enter the competition. Um, now, I mean, you, you could say that I'm not actually a, a student of any school, um, any NCAA school or any other school. But then again, why does that matter? Maybe I identify as being a student. Um, I, even though I'm a man, I, I wouldn't like my chances actually competing against the women in swimming because uh, because I well because I, I can't swim. I'm a pretty good doggy paddler. That's my move. And uh, my wife, anytime we're in any kind of lake or pool or ocean, she can't stop laughing at me, looking at me, kind of like doggy paddling around. But that's I'm not ever going to be in a position where I need to actually swim. The doggy paddle's good enough for me. But I will be at uh, Georgia Tech. Around the time when this, uh, when the NCAA Women's Swimming Championships are happening, and Leah Thomas, the male, will be competing against the females, and I'll be there at Georgia Tech to explain why that's wrong. And that'll be Monday, uh, March 14th at 5:30. And stay tuned for more details on that as well. Okay, Doc Holiday says any man that is called Matt, Sweet Daddy, Big Daddy, or any form of the word Daddy forfeits their man card forever. Uh, under most circumstances, I would agree with you, Doc Holliday, but I'm going to allow an exception in this case. Chupi says, how has Matt managed to avoid the Daily Wire's mid-show subscribe to continue viewing video cut? Whatever the reason, thanks for always having been there for the DW freeloading crew. I actually wish I hadn't read this comment because uh, I don't want to call attention to the fact that we don't do that here. I don't know either is your question, but I let's just move on. Um, let's see. Erica says, the term authentic self has to be the most annoying phrase ever uttered. Yeah, I, don't, I, I agree that it's annoying because of how it's so often used. And I think you're referring to, we talked about the, the Sports Illustrated cover fl- fluff piece, the cover piece about Leah Thomas. And he was talking about how now that he's grown his hair out and is pretending to be a woman, 
that he's living his authentic self. And I agree that that's completely absurd, obviously, because that's the exact opposite of what he's doing. He is rejecting his authentic self and um, any pain or discomfort that he's experiencing right now internally is is, is grounded in that, in that he has rejected his authentic self. Um, but that's exactly why the phrase itself I don't have a problem with. Because we do have a, a, a huge issue in our culture, a crisis-level problem, I think, of people rejecting their authentic self. You know, Because there's your authentic self, and then there's the your, your self-perception. And those are not necessarily the same. And in fact... For, for, for probably everybody, they don't exactly line up, right? We all, you know, for all of us, you, you are a certain type of person. You are a certain way. You look a certain way. You act a certain way. You have a certain personality. Um, but your perception of who you are is probably not 100% accurate, for better or worse. You might think you're uglier than you actually are. Uh, you might think you're dumber than you actually are. I think for a lot of people, their self-perception goes the other way, unfortunately, though. So, authentic self and self-perception. I think those are two phrases that we actually need. Don't take your frustrations out on the phrases themselves. Um, and this should be our message to people. That, you know, true harmony and, um, you know, happiness in life comes in part from this alignment between your self-perception and your authentic self. And you should try to line those things up. Well, this is another big week at The Daily Wire. Why? Because this Thursday night, March 10th, we're premiering yet another film, and uh, we cannot wait to share it with you. That film is called The Hyperions, and it's exactly what entertainment in Hollywood is often missing these days. It's not woke. It has zero underlying political message, and it's just, uh, well, it's an excellent film. Because when it comes to entertainment, that's all that matters. If you don't believe me, check out the trailer. Good day, Hyperion Club members. We've come for one thing, our Titan badges. This Titan badge can grant an individual superhuman power. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take on the responsibility. On my way. She's trying to destroy me. So The Hyperions is a dysfunctional family film with throwback vibes, and it's 100% worth the stream. We'll be streaming the film once on March 10th for all of YouTube to see. This is the last time we're going to be uh, giving the movie away to you freeloaders. After this, you have to be a Daily Wire member, um, which means go to dailywire.com slash subscribe so that you don't miss any more of uh, all the content that we have coming your way. Also, you know, it's always time for new voices to enter the transgender conversation because, as always, diversity is extremely important. And you know, if you know anything about me, the first thing you know about me is that I value diversity and equity and inclusion and tolerance most of all. That's why I authored the best-selling children's LGBTQ plus book, um, Literary Sensation, the most influential LGBT uh, piece of literature ever written, Johnny the Wal- Walrus. And... Um, as you know, I was invited on Dr. Phil to talk about it as well. You can see those clips. Even more importantly, if you haven't picked up a copy of my best-selling children's book, which is sitting so subtly behind me at this hotel, because I bring it with me on trips. I, this is my reading material. I just read it over and over again on flights. I, I, I read it in my hotel room. Um, and through each successive reading, it's so layered that you pick up on additional things you didn't, you didn't see the first time. Um, so go to JohnnyTheWalrus.com. 
or go to Amazon and get your copy now. Finally, the media loves to amplify one side of any story, and it's always the one that agrees with the narrative they're pushing. That's why we've taken it upon ourselves to start our own publishing wing called DW Books, and uh, of which I think John Walrus was the very first thing that we published with our new publishing imprint, which is a point of pride, at least for me. I don't know about for anybody else. Um, but we've got a lot more coming down the pike, including 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. The book is the true story of what really happened the night of the tragic Breonna Taylor shooting. Mattingly, a 20-year police veteran, takes readers inside his, his department's response and debunks the lies that have recklessly been shared with the public. Check out the trailer. It was very chaotic. It was very quick. Instantly, I knew I was shot. Breonna Taylor, she was caught in the crossfire of those bullets. As soon as your brain's registering, it's already over. The media got so many things wrong in this case, saying we had the wrong apartment. Her name wasn't on the warrant. She was shot and killed in her sleep, in her bed. These are lies. This is not true. And all the while, you're hearing all these outside influences from athletes and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, all those people coming and attacking you, putting your name on their account saying he should be in prison. All these things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they have such influence. The more we attack police for doing their job, the less good qualified police you're going to have. When you read 12 Seconds in the Dark, you will find out the truth of what really happened the night of the Breonna Taylor raid. You know, in a world where voices like his are censored, this story is incredibly important, and we're so grateful to have this brave truth teller on board. The book releases March 15th, but it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online. So after you buy 10 more copies of uh, Johnny the Walrus, then go get that book as well. Get your pre-ordered copy today, because I promise you it will sell out. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. You know, there are some conservatives who say that uh, we should not punch right and uh, I mostly agree, but with the stipulation that the most common form of punching right is when people on the right punch themselves directly in their own faces. And when I see people on the right giving themselves right hooks to the skull, I feel the need to chime in and say, knock it off. And this is sometimes interpreted as me punching right, but really it's the opposite. This is like I'm trying to, to, to help them. I'm not the one doing the punching. The punches are self-inflicted. And that brings us finally to the so-called People's Convoy, which, um, which it made it, or maybe it's the Freedom Convoy, which was, one is the Canadian one, one is this one. Anyway, it made its way to D.C., um, or rather around D.C. this weekend. Now, this convoy is a sort of sequel to the Canadian Convoy, and it's, it, like most Hollywood reboots, it, it lacks much of the appeal and, I think, almost all of the point of the original. The only real similarity between the two is that they both feature protesting truckers. But beyond that, the connection kind of breaks down. Here's the Washington Post with their report of um, what happened yesterday when they all arrived. An armada of drivers calling themselves the People's Convoy, okay, so it is the People's Convoy, is circling the Beltway at a deliberately slow speed Sunday as an act of protest against pandemic restrictions. Organizers said their goal was to be a huge pain, quote-unquote. But though the convoy of hundreds of trucks, cars, and SUVs started out moving in a formation that, ru- that stretched roughly 30 miles, it became diluted after merging with normal Beltway traffic. As of 2.30 p.m. Sunday, the convoy was well into its second loop around the district. The vehicles were spread out in groups on Interstate 495's outer loop, going about 40 miles an hour. Traffic was flowing around them, as usual, at about 55 miles an hour. 
Quote, we're not even sure that we can call it a convoy anymore because it's so dispersed among routine traffic at this point, said Virginia State Police spokeswoman Corinne Geller. Uh, The group intends to repeat its Beltway loop every day this week, according to organizer Brian Braze. The group says that it will increase the number of trips around the Beltway each day to pressure lawmakers and public officials. While the disruption the motorists caused on Sunday was minimal, their presence could create far more chaos during a weekday when Beltway traffic is already thick with commuters. Okay, so as of Sunday, the convoy had, had, had simply been absorbed by the traffic and had really accomplished nothing. And that may be all it ever achieves, unless, with the help of a, of a workday rush hour, um, it manages in the days ahead to, cr- to create the huge pain that it wants to create and make, make Beltway traffic even worse than it usually is. Those are the two best-case scenarios, right? That it does nothing... Um, that's one best case scenario, or it creates a huge inconvenience. The worst case scenarios are that things somehow get out of hand, out of control. Uh, some kind of violence happens as a result. Maybe there's a road rage incident. Maybe a trucker is involved in an accident that kills somebody. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that will happen, those, but those are the worst cases. So again, best case, nothing happens, or only something moderately bad happens, which is a lot of traffic and it annoys people. Worst case... Something worse than moderately bad happens. So you might be asking, what's the win here? Which of these results do the truckers involved hope to see happen? Or have they imagined some other fantasy scenario? Do they think that after a week of circling the beltway, uh, Biden will hold a press conference agreeing to give the truckers anything that they demand? Well, the problem with that hope is that it 100% will not happen. But second... It's not even clear what they're demanding exactly. So even if you wanted to give them what they demand, you really can't. So let's break this down. Here's why the, the People's Convoy is, is uh, less, than, less than a smart idea. And why it has got another example of people on the right beating the hell out of themselves, much like that scene in Fight Club with Ed Norton. First, we're two years into this. Most of the very worst mandates and policies have already been lifted. Even the deepest blue cities are finally loosening their restrictions. Uh, and the truckers have chosen now, two years later, when all this stuff is going away, it's at this very moment when we're, when, when we're going to have this demonstration? At the moment when we're already starting to win the COVID fight, finally, now we stage the demonstration? Why now, of all times? The Biden administration is losing the battle on the COVID narrative. You might say they've already basically lost it. And they're losing in every other way also, everywhere. Democrats are barreling towards a historic landslide annihilation in the midterms. All this can do, if it does anything, is distract from the hapless incompetence of the flailing Democrats and give them a shiny object to point to, a villain to demonize, and say, look at these right-wing extremists making your life harder, showing no respect for you as a working man, uh, making it harder for you to get to work, making it harder for you to to get home to your families and your children after work. That's what they'll say if they feel the need to acknowledge this at all. What they certainly will not say is, you know what? Because these random truckers circled the Beltway 98 times, we're now going to renounce our evil leftist ways and and willingly forfeit our positions of power. I feel certain that they will not say that. Second point. One of the reasons I know they won't say that is that this protest is very specifically being done in a way so as to cause no pain at all to the actual leftist lawmakers in D.C. who are ostensibly its targets. So the truckers are, are, uh, at least based on what was going on on Sunday, 
trying to cause gridlock on the already gridlocked DC Beltway. Um, or at least, you know, more traffic than usual. I mean, they're not stopping their trucks in the middle of the highway, but, you know, slowing down intentionally and, and trying to cause traffic. What they perhaps don't understand is that D.C. politicians are mostly living inside the Beltway in D.C. itself. Their offices are a few blocks away from where they live. Most of them fly into D.C. on the rare, odd occasion where they actually have to do some work. And they either stay in a hotel or, or like in AOC's case, they have expensive homes that they rent in the fancy parts of town. They don't get on the Beltway to get to work. Okay, so they're going to be totally unaffected by this. AOC and Nancy Pelosi aren't going to be sitting in traffic behind the wheel, pulling their hair out, uh, frustrated and reassessing their life choices. That's not going to happen. Do you know who will have that experience if the truckers succeed in being a, quote, huge pain? Regular working people. The D.C. Beltway is not a secret VIP passageway used by the elite when they're going to meet at their creepy, eyes wide shut sex dungeons. It's actually just a highway where people who live in Maryland and Virginia drive to work. And many of them are normal blue-collar people. Now, there might be some lawyers and lobbyists and assorted ne'er-do-wells in the mix, but there are a lot of just hourly wage workers, blue-collar types, uh, soccer moms, and so on. Speaking of soccer moms, they just helped us deliver a huge win in Virginia. And for their troubles, now they're going to be punished by this uh, convoy as well. Here's the thing. If you want someone to hate you, I mean just viscerally hate you, despise you with every fiber of their being, the kind of hatred where they, they sit and fantasize about terrible and violent things happening to you. If you want to make that happen, then go to a busy highway during rush hour and intentionally cause more congestion. I can think of no more efficient way to be hated by more people all at once. Of all pos- political persuasions, is this the goal? To be hated by normal people who commit the sin of needing to use the highway between 6 and 9 a.m. on a weekday? To make matters worse, the people who are causing this inconvenience or who or tried causing it, cause it anyway, can't even really explain why they're doing it. Now, supporters say that it's about pandemic restrictions, but when you point out that most of those restrictions are already gone, and the rest are probably on their way out, um, and the ones that maybe will be around for a long time exist in certain contexts where you'd think the, t- the protests will be more targeted, like, like at airports, for example. Now, those restrictions may never go away, and those are federal restrictions, but so then why aren't you protesting at an airport if you're going to protest at all? Not that I'm advocating anybody causing more congestion at airports, because that's not going to help anything either. But um, when you point that out, um, what you're told, what you're given in response are kind of vague platitudes about freedom and unity. And as one person told me on Twitter, this is about people standing together. And someone else told me, well, they don't need to explain themselves to you, you busybody. They have a right to demonstrate. Well, yeah, they do have a right. But if you're not willing or able to explain your demonstration, it is inherently a pointless and counterproductive demonstration. Demonstrations are supposed to, well, demonstrate something, send a message, push for some specific end. So what does this demonstrate? Other than the participants' lack of originality, for one, and their total disregard for the other people on the roadway. Um, But by far, the worst defense that I've heard of this is, when, is, is, is that, well, hey, at least they're doing something. But doing something is certainly not always better than doing nothing. Okay, Doing nothing is zero. That's a zero. Doing something counterproductive is a negative. And zero is better than a negative. That's just mathematics. You know what the at least they're doing something mentality got us? It got us January 6th. 
which was, which was not an insurrection or a terrorist attack, but it was an incredibly stupid and monumentally counterproductive event in which a lot of people went out and did something without stopping for even a moment to think about whether the thing they're doing has any chance at all of actually helping. Spoiler, it didn't. It had no chance of helping, and it's not helping unless the plan was to help the Democrats and the left, which it certainly did succeed in doing. You know, if I'm upset about the income tax, I could put on a clown suit and jump on a pogo stick while singing the Macarena, you know? And I would be doing something. I mean, you couldn't, if you came up to me and said, say, well, why are you doing this? Uh, at least I'm doing something. It's something, certainly. It is something. But the something I'm doing only makes me look like, in this case, a literal clown. It, bring, it brings attention to me. It, it lets me blow off steam in my own personal way. But if I was hoping to achieve a reduction in the income tax, it's hard to see how my pogo stick clown suit plan will achieve that goal. Yet this is what we so often do on the right. We, 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 you know, people go out and just do things. We do a whole lot of things, doing a whole lot of somethings, yet it doesn't really accomplish anything because there's, there's not much strategy behind it. Now, that's not always the case, of course. There are plenty of people on the right who know how to think strategically, who know how to win and how to uh, stage a demonstration, cause a scene while advancing their agenda at the same time. If I may say so humbly, I have myself been involved in more than one of these kinds of successful demonstrations. What's the difference between the successful ones and the pointless circus acts? Well, if you're on the successful side, you know what your win looks like. You have clear goals in mind. You know what a win is. You know what the potential loss would be. And you've roughly calculated the chances of the loss against the chances of the win. You've determined that the win is sufficiently more likely and that it's worth the risk of the loss. You've also thought about how this will play, what it will look like, what the optics will be. If you don't care about optics, you know, then um, then you shouldn't be in the protest game because protests are all about optics. That's the whole point. You've also considered how your enemies might sabotage uh, what you're doing, and you know what your counterpunch will be in each case. Perhaps most importantly of all, you can explain exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. You have a message. Everyone involved knows the message, and they stay on message. And you drill that message every chance you get. You're more than happy to explain yourself. In fact, that's the whole reason that you're doing what you're doing. You have a point, and you want nothing more than to explain that point. This is how we, we and when I say we, I mean not just me, obviously, but lots of people on the right help to flip Virginia red. No small feat. But this were, these were targeted acts of demonstration with specific goals in mind. We knew what the win is, and we stayed on message. The message in Virginia was parental rights. That was the message. Stay on it, and you, you beat on that drum every chance you get. It can't be, well, it's this, and it's also this, and also just freedom, and also this generally, and also unity and harmony and all the good things and rainbows and puppy dogs. That can't be it. Um. That's how we flip Virginia red anyway, but you know, with, with a lot of traffic on the D.C. Beltway, maybe our trucker friends will help to flip it blue again. Who knows? There's a better chance of that than of whatever positive result they have in their minds. And that ultimately is why they are, I'm afraid to say, uh, today canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, 
Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. America destroys Russia's economy. Lindsey Graham calls for assassinating Putin. And the media claims straight guys enjoy kissing and snuggling with their buddies. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.